Well, good morning. Um, I was really happy that Cindy and Keith brought us into worship this morning with a song about the everlasting arms, because I've also been thinking about a similar song, a much older hymn that talks about everlasting arms. There's a much older hymn, though, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Some of you might remember that one. It's a beautiful old hymn. It has a refrain in it that's kind of stuck in my mind this week, where it talks about being safe and secure from all alarms, leaning on the everlasting arms. It's, it's a wonderful old hymn. It's a nice one. However, it sort of stands in contrast to our texts this morning from the Gospel of Mark. We are reminded in the Gospel reading that following Jesus doesn't always bring us into places that are safe and secure from all alarms. Jesus can sometimes take people into surprising and even dangerous territory. You know, from the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was held in suspicion by the religious leaders of the day. They, they saw him as just this itinerant backwater preacher who would come in uh, talking about things that, that threatened both the religious and even the political status quos. And, and people were concerned because he claimed to have a unique kind of authority. He talked about a, a personal identity that was challenging to them, and he declared that God's kingdom was actually at hand. Well, on this particular day, Jesus' disciples are apparently hungry, and they are plucking these heads of grain as they're walking through some farmer's field. That was a minor thing, the act itself. Such a minor harvesting was considered to be acceptable within the Jewish law, but not if you did it on the Sabbath. Uh, the action itself was the equivalent of work, and work, of course, was forbidden on the Sabbath. And then these Pharisees pop up. Mark does not explain where they've come from. We have no idea if they were stalking Jesus or hanging with Jesus or what they were doing, but there they were. But they have objections, as they typically do, about what has happened here. And so they raise a very important legal and religious question. Why are they, those disciples of yours, Jesus, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And again, the, it wasn't the plucking of the grain that was the problem. It was the day on which it was done. Had this action taken place uh, the day before, the day after the Sabbath, nobody would have complained about it. It would have been considered perfectly legal. And it's interesting that, that Jesus doesn't try to justify what his disciples have done. He, he references the story of King David and his men, but that's just a historical parallel. In the very end, Jesus' claim is that people were not created for the sake of the Sabbath. They were not created in order that the Sabbath demands would be satisfied. He says that the Sabbath was created for the benefit of human beings. He claims that the authority for allowing his disciples to do what they have just done comes from the authority of the Son of Man, from Jesus himself, who he claims is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees say that adherence to the law takes priority over human need. And this is played out even more dramatically the next day when Jesus enters the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees watch very carefully to see if he's going to do what he is able to do. They do not deny that he has the power to heal, apparently. They just want to see if he's actually going to do it. And when he does, they raise the same objections. If you did it the day before, it would have been okay. Day after, not a problem to heal a human being from an ailment. On the Sabbath, God's not in that business, or so they might say. 
So the Pharisees say that adherence to the law always takes priority over human need. Jesus says that everything finds its true meaning when he's on the job. You know, people in our context, in our time, uh, may abide by some particular religious directives or disciplines, but all of us are subject to the laws of our land. No matter what country we come from, we're subject to that country's laws. And even though our civil and criminal laws are not necessarily religious in nature, they do set limits on what can and cannot be done. So for example, when a new law comes into effect, it has the power to change our entire mental landscape about what is right and what is wrong. It has that power. Uh, for example, in prior to 1930, people from other countries, because this is a big topic right now, people from other countries could cross U.S. borders without permission and without fear of prosecution. It just kind of went back and forth. But from one day to the next, such action became illegal. So on Monday, March 3rd, 1930, someone from another country could just slip on over, slip back, not a big deal. But the very next day when that law went into effect, that respectable person became a criminal, just like that. Or another example, in the 1920s, when prohibition became the law of the land, uh, making the sale and distribution of alcohol illegal, people were, they knew that that was the wrong thing to do, was to be involved in that kind of trade. But when prohibition was repealed, such activity was immediately moved from the criminal to the respectable. Uh, my great-grandfather was a uh, part of that early holiness movement, and in 1924, he wrote a hymn. He wrote a lot of hymns. Uh, some of them are still found in hymn books today. But he wrote a particular one that decried, in uh, 1924, decried the use of tobacco while celebrating the success of the temperance movement, linking the illegality of alcohol with the temperance movement's insistence on the sinfulness of drink. He really did write such a hymn. It's called... Some of you might be familiar with it. King Nicotine Must Die. <laughs> it's, it's an, it's, this is a real thing. I have the book at home. It's in a book called Songs That Are Different. <laughs> along with his anti-evolution song, Up a Coconut Tree. I was going to um, share those with Cindy for this morning, but I thought better of it, actually. Well, our laws... Our laws change all the time, and those changes have the effect of altering our understanding of what's right and what's wrong. When those early Christian temperance advocates lost the ability to equate legality and holiness, they had to speak about alcohol only from the standpoint of religious conviction. The, the law would not support their views any longer. We face a very similar situation today with the legalization of marijuana, don't we? If it isn't illegal, then is it not sinful to smoke a little weed now and again? Who sets the rules for these sorts of things? Uh, who gets to create our ethical and moral landscape? How do we think these things through as followers of Jesus? Well, having heard the things that Jesus said about plucking grain on the Sabbath, healing a withered hand on the Sabbath, the Pharisees would very likely have concluded that to follow Jesus was to follow him into lawlessness. And ultimately, that would be part of the accusations that, that sent him to his death. The Jewish law for them had to be honored and followed, no matter what. Well, as you probably know, the Jewish law was not limited to just 10 commandments. There 
are well over 600 legal requirements in the Old Testament that would have been considered part of the law in Jesus' day. And in their inception, they were commands imposed by God uh, in order to transform, reform, change the ancient Hebrew people from their shared self-understanding, their shared self-image as a slave population on the run from Egypt into the beloved people of God, whose every waking moment would be turned toward God rather than turned toward the Pharaoh. But by the time of Jesus and his disciples, the law was like this impossibly high stone wall that people would crash against over and over and over, never able to fully conform to its demands. So in a sense, the law, the Jewish law, was the new Pharaoh, demanding the people's lives seven days a week, 24 hours a day, even on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus was not anti-law in any way, shape, or form. He was once asked what he thought was the greatest commandment, and he answered by offering up two of them, love of God, love of neighbor. But rather than just take all the rest of the law and just shove it aside as though it was no longer relevant, he claimed that all of the law, even the words of all the prophets, were summed up in love of God and love of neighbor. In other words, Jesus understood the deep structure, the deep meaning of the Jewish law. Well, while the law, including restrictions regarding activity on the Sabbath, was, was made up of a lot of particular requirements about commerce and labor and agriculture and sex and on and on and on, there was also a deep structure that made sense of it all. The deep structure was the orientation of people's lives toward God and toward others, an orientation that was grounded in love. And without that deep structure, all of the commandments in the scriptures were arbitrary at best and crushing legalism at worst. So when Jesus claims that the Sabbath was made for human beings and not the other way around, he's not merely reversing a kind of master-slave relationship. He's framing the Sabbath as what it was intended to be, a gift from God that allowed people to quit acting like slaves, to cease their labors, something they were not allowed to do in Egypt, and to remember who they really were, God's beloved people. And in making this claim, Jesus also declared his authority, his lordship over that thing called Sabbath. You know, social and religious conventions were not lost on Jesus, but he knew how to dive into the deep structure, the deep meaning of those conventions. Sometimes he, he revealed something a lot more valuable than people had imagined, and at other times he revealed the fallacy of some practices, like praying loudly in the street so that everybody can hear you and see you and, and, and celebrate your piety, or, or giving alms and making a big noise about it as you reached out to the poor so that everybody would know how amazingly generous you were. He called those things out. Well, we're confronted with those kinds of things today, but, but they come to us in forms that, that differ from those that Jesus faced, at least in the context that he was in. 
We may not be struggling with how to manage our lives on the Sabbath, but we do have to ask ourselves some very important questions like, do we exist to obey laws? Or do laws exist to serve and protect people? Are people qualified to be human beings made in the image of God only when they have a shared nationality or a shared citizenship? Is our understanding of right and wrong determined only by legislative action? Or is there a deep structure to our ethics that comes from understanding who we are as the people of God? You know, as challenging as these times are for us, I'm, I'm often encouraged when I, when I read or hear about Christians who, who have the courage to dive in to that deep structure of our faith when the world around us explodes with, with controversy and scandal and injustice. There's a church in Savannah, Georgia. It's the oldest existing African-American church in the nation. It's the first African Baptist church of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, it was founded before the Declaration of Independence was signed, 1773, founded by a former slave. And the church is still in operation. It's a worshiping community uh, that's vibrant and alive and dedicated to the gospel and reaches out to the community to care for the homeless and the poor. And a number of years ago, my wife and I were able to take a tour of this church with some friends of ours and learn about its history. And our, our guide that day was the brother of the pastor of the church. And he told us that this, this beautiful old structure was built, for the most part, by slaves. And uh, the cost of the building was funded by the money they had been saving to buy their freedom. We looked around and we saw up in the balcony pews that were hand-carved by slaves 150 plus years ago. We looked around and we saw designs on, on pillars. There was these dots in kind of a diamond shape. And in the floor, they were there too, drilled down into the floorboards. And, and they were part of, a, of an African symbol that reminded the people of their national heritage. Our guide asked us to look closely at them in the floor and he said they actually had a dual purpose. Not only were they symbolic, but they provided ventilation to the hidden chambers below the floors. He said that during the initial construction of the building in the 19th century, people in the community watched and went, what is wrong with these folks? They're building this building completely backwards. Everybody knows you lay the foundation, then you build the walls, right? No, 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 these folks built the walls first. How odd. Of course, once the walls were up, nobody could see what was going on inside. Uh, before the foundation was laid, two tunnels were dug, one that went right down to the wharf where the slave ships would unload their human cargo, and the other one would head north off into the woods, oriented toward that part of the country where slavery was illegal. The rooms below the sanctuary held the slaves that had been pulled right off the docks. They'd step off the ship and magically disappear into a tunnel. Nobody knew where they went. And they would spirit them off to the church, where they would hide until they could head north and be helped by the Underground Railroad. He said that the church had been raided by the police a number of times over the years. They never got busted, never caught them, even though while the police would be going through, people would be hiding, breathing through those air holes in the floor. Well, the church, technically speaking, stood in violation of the law, didn't it? It was legal in the South at that time for enslaved people to be classified as property, and the church was stealing private property, pulling them off the wharf, taking them to this shelter, sending them off to freedom. That was illegal in that context. Well, you can imagine the church leaders at that time had to make some very, very difficult decisions. 
as a marginalized people at that time, uh, they knew that it was in their best interest to obey the laws of the land. But they also knew what it meant to be devalued and treated as chattel. And, and they had to contrast that reality with their own understanding of being a people beloved by God, a people called to enact God's justice in the world. As gospel people, they understood the deep structure of justice and that the enslavement of human beings as a legal activity was a tragic distortion of what God had intended. They recognized that there would be dire consequences if their subversive work was discovered, but they willingly became lawbreakers for the sake of the deep structure of the gospel. Now, maybe they didn't have the power to change the laws of the land. Clearly, they, they didn't. But they had every intention of following Jesus, even if doing so took them into dangerous territory. You know, for Jesus and his friends, the breaking of the Sabbath laws had a different consequence than breaking the Roman law. Breaking the Sabbath might make per, a person a, an outcast, a pariah in the worshiping community, but breaking the Roman law could get a person crucified. Well, ultimately, Jesus' enemies conflated the Jewish and Roman laws, claiming not only that Jesus was a blasphemer, but that he was also attempting to subvert the authority of the emperor. You know, when we look at the controversies that reveal significant problems in nations and in churches, we could become confused, discouraged, even fearful. We can fear that we're losing things that are very important to us, things like our sense of freedom, our safety, our standards, our decency, our cherished theologies even. I imagine that the Pharisees who were questioning Jesus feared that he would diminish the long-standing value that they had placed on honoring the Sabbath. And if you think about it, you can appreciate their concern. But Jesus was not about upending legal institutions, whether they were governmental or religious. He seemed to be very realistic about the nature of such institutions and their inevitable influence over societies. But by word and deed, Jesus altered the social order around him. And I believe he calls us to do the same. He doesn't call us to lawlessness, although historically Christians have, on occasion, participated in civil disobedience. But Jesus does call us to follow him into the dangerous and deep places of love, demonstrating the value for the people that God loves, the people of the world around us. So how do we picture Jesus in these days? Do we see him just with his arms crossed, pressed protectively against his chest? Or are they opened wide, calling strangers family, stretching the fabric of the Sabbath in such a way that it becomes larger and not smaller than what God intended it to be? You know, I'm glad that our texts this morning take place on the Sabbath, a day that's intended for rest. Maybe that helps us to think about how we respond to all the political and social and religious dramas that seem to just flood our senses day after day after day. Maybe we need periodic Sabbath rests from these things, not only to detoxify our minds and our bodies, 
but also to explore and remember what it means to follow Jesus into such dangerous territory. You see, Sabbath rest reminds us that we are not slaves. We're not slaves to the Pharaoh. We're not slaves to news stories. We're not slaves to governments. We're not slaves to religious legalism. We are people who have given our allegiance to the Lord of the Sabbath. And it is in that Lord that we find rest. Amen.